Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Jeremy Treat joins me to talk about the atonement and pastoring in the pandemic. Jeremy has a book called Crucified King that came out several years ago that's a super helpful way of talking about the atonement while considering both biblical theology and systematic theology. And obviously, as a pastor in California over the last few years, he has a lot of good insights on the pandemic and how his church went through it. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Jeremy. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Jeremy Treat. But first, no big deal. I have Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Dr. Reverend, uh, Right Reverend Jeremy Treat on the podcast today. Thanks for hopping on with me, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Thanks for nailing that, uh, all my titles in there. I, re- I really care about that. <laughs> um, all right, I want to, before we get to you, I want to talk about your, your book, Crucified King. It's, it's been out for a little while now. I think it's still uh, extremely relevant. And you've got a, a new volume uh, on the atonement in the short studies in systematic theology with Crossway. So it's kind of timely to bring this back up, I think, as well. So we'll talk through that. But first, uh, you're a Clippers fan. Uh, you right. and I, you and I can mutually hate the Lakers together, but uh, the Mavs and the Clippers have had some pretty good playoff battles the last couple of years. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, how you're feeling about the fact that you got a guy like Ky- uh, Kawhi Leonard who just bails on his team every time he doesn't like how things are going. Well, uh, no, no, you know, no, 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 no. So. Put some respect on that name, Kawhi. <laughs> okay, you're talking about uh, Finals MVP right there. Yeah. No, I, you he know, was. It, it, it's it, twice. It's been a, it's been a rough um, it's it's been a rough year for my Clippers. But what all I can say is we're missing our two best players, and we're still the best team in LA. So I'll I'll run with that. I'll take it, and we might get them towards the end of the season and make a run for it. So we're doing all right, and we yeah, and we and we we did sweep the Lakers this year. So oh wow, it, it's going okay. Yeah, I mean it is it is true. If the Clippers get everybody back right at the right time, you never know what could happen. So. Yeah, it's. I mean, um, it's an interesting year. It's been kind of dominated by injuries and super yeah. teams, and we'll see what happens. Well, I was definitely. I mean, if I were, if I were, an, I am kind of anti-Lakers. You're probably more so than me. But when they when they traded for Westbrook, I would have been so excited as a non-Lakers fan. <laughs> yeah. That's just the dumbest yeah. decision. Oh, I mean, just oh just watching the downward spiral all year <laughs> has been entertaining. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I. Uh, so I'm, I, I lived a lot of my life in Seattle. And so in junior high, I was like the Sonics were my squad. Oh yeah. So like Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, like those were the glory days, man. That was when I was coming of age. And so because I was a Sonics fan, I didn't like the Lakers. And then when I came down to LA a long time ago, uh, over 20 years ago, I, I became a Clippers fan. So I, I've been loyal. I was, I was, I was with them in the worst times. Uh, and it, it's good times now. Yeah, man. I mean, you, you definitely have lived through, um, you know, the Chris Paul, Blake Griffin era of just like thinking you might get there, bad game yeah. sevens. I mean, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Mavericks fan. So in the 90s, growing up in Dallas, we the, the Mavericks have the uh, prestigious uh, title of being having the lowest winning percentage of any team of all four major sports uh, in the 90s. It's, it's, wow. some, it's like a 13% winning percentage or something just insane like that. Uh, and so I got to watch all that. Then got to the Mavericks, you know, blow the 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 finals or the referees blow the finals for the Mavericks so badly in 06. <laughs> and then finally the mountaintop, you know, so I've always said that if the Mavericks won, if Dirk won one championship, I'd be happy forever. 
And that's basically true. But now, you know, Luca's giving me new hope. So now it's like I'm back on like thinking maybe something could happen in five years. But yeah, that's right. Well, I, I respect the loyalty that I hear from you. And yeah, Luca's Luca's the real deal. He'll he'll make it happen in time. Well, uh, this is not this is this is gonna sound like trash talk, but it's not. But when he got the I mean, I think the the Mavs probably would have beat the Clippers if he had not been injured for two and a half games in the middle of that that series. The Mavericks seemed like they I mean he seemed like he had it and then it all yeah. shifted. Then Kawhi Leonard decided to, you know, show up for his team and uh, play so great. So yeah, yeah, there's a little yeah. bit of hatred toward Kawhi Leonard in my heart. He was a Spurs, play, a Spurs player, you know, and then he goes to the Clippers and beats the Mavericks. So I've just got right, you know, right, respect, right. but not love. No. Sure, sure. I feel it. Okay. Well, our, our, uh, I got a comment one time on my, uh, on my podcast review that they didn't like all the gratuitous small talk that I do sometimes. So we should move on from the gratuitous small talk before uh, somebody but, else gets but, mad but, at me. <laughs> but theology is rooted in relationships, right? That's right, baby. So this yeah. is, we're just, we're building trust and camaraderie here. Yeah. Yeah. By making fun of each other's teams. I mean, how, how better exactly. can you, can you make sports camaraderie than talking trash? So that's right. Okay. So let's talk about, I really want to talk about the atonement. And then uh, if we have a little time at the end, just talking through your experience as a pastor going through uh, the pandemic, that's now, you know, three years running at this point, it feels like. Sure. Um, so you published Crucified King uh, with Zondervan, and that was, mm-hmm. what, 2010? Is that right? Mm, no, 2014. 14, yeah, 14. Yeah. Yeah, the last three years, it felt like 12, so everything, you know. Just, <laughs> totally. You know. It was but, pre-pandemic. That's when I published it. Yeah. Now, it makes sense, actually, because it came out while I was in grad school, which would have been about that time. Um, and I remember it coming out, and I was, uh, as a master's student, I mean, I was totally happy with penal substitution started being introduced to Christus Victor, being introduced to these different atonement theories as, as one does when they're in seminary and grad school. And just started thinking like, there's got to be a better way to bring all this stuff together. I just, I, I'm a, I tend to not be a type of person, like I, you can call it squishy or whatever, but I, I tend to like middle roads, third ways. How do we bring this stuff together? Particularly when it's biblical, because typically if you can build an argument for one extreme from the Bible and build argument for another extreme from the Bible, there's probably truth in both, right? And so I think yeah. what you do so well here is you're bringing together, uh, you know, by your own admission, biblical and systematic theology, a divide that uh, a lot of us would like to see go away. Mm-hmm. Um, kingdom and atonement language, which kind of flows out of that, which are oftentimes pitted against each other. And then the gospels versus Paul, right? I mean, there's these kind of three big bifurcations that happen in the, in the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement, that I think you just did such a great job of pulling together. And I think that you've been recognized for that. Uh, rightly so in many ways. So maybe just talk through where this project come from. This came out of your, uh, your PhD at Wheaton. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, just talk through a little bit of, of how you got there, how you got thinking about the topic and maybe just launch into a big overview of, of what you're yeah. trying to do. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, this was, it was, uh, this was my, essentially my dissertation. I mean, I revised it and then Zondervan published it, which I was incredibly grateful for. But it started for me um, long before that. I mean, I, I remember when I was, I think, around college age, and I had heard a preacher uh, ask the question, what was the number one thing Jesus talked about? And I felt like I felt like I knew the answer. Like, of course, I know this. Like, he's going to say the cross uh, or, you know, maybe heaven, maybe love, something like that. And then he said, the number one thing Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God. And I, I, I mean, it just floored me. Like, it. I, it wasn't even on my radar. And I had grown up in a church where we talked a lot about the cross. We talked a lot about heaven. We talked a lot about God's love. And um, kingdom of God just wasn't even a category for us. And, and I kind of had this like implicit understanding of, well, that's what the liberals talk about, you know? 
And so, but when he, when that, when I heard that preacher say that the number one thing Jesus talked about, I just felt flooded by conviction. Like, wait a second, if that's the number one thing Jesus talked about, and it doesn't shape the way I understand Christianity, it doesn't shape how I think of following Jesus or how I view the world, like something's deeply off here. And so I really set out on a journey to understand the kingdom of God. And as I did that, I just kept finding this dichotomy of, okay, here's some people who are talking about the kingdom of God, but they don't talk about the cross. And then I'm reading piles of books on the atonement and like nobody even talks about the kingdom of God, even though that's the number one thing Jesus talked about. So I set out on this journey to really understand kingdom and cross and and, you know, so I looked in academic works and then even popularly, I could see churches kind of rallying around these two sides, right? You have kind of the kingdom crowd that usually leans towards like social activism. And then you have the cross crowd that's more focused on personal salvation and whatnot. And um, so I spent three years, you know, under my my theological hero, Kevin Van Hooser and with, um, incredible brothers and sisters in Christ at Wheaton, really trying to think deeply about this. And that was the crucified King is the result of that. And so I try to essentially show that uh, you can't, you can't pit kingdom and cross against one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they're, they're integrated in the story of scripture, ultimately in the person and work of Christ. And so Jesus brings the kingdom by way of the cross. And so the, the, The kingdom is the goal of the cross and the cross is the means by which it comes. And then we live in this cruciform kingdom. It's not like Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and then the kingdom comes and we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're good with triumphalism now. Uh, We live in, we're, we're in union with the debt, with the uh, crucified and resurrected Christ and in the tension of the already and the not yet of that experiencing death and resurrection and witnessing to the kingdom. So, I mean, that's kind of a big picture of the crucified King. I mean, like you said, within that, I'm trying to bring together other things in there. And so penal substitution and Christus Victor was, was a big one. I mean, I have, a, I have a whole chapter on that and that's probably what's gotten the most attention I would say with the book. And yeah, I mean, I just felt like for me coming through seminary, I was presented with options, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you believe, Either this is kind of how the how it, it's been traditionally framed by so many people is, do you either believe that uh, you know Christ paid the penalty for your sins, or that he de- defeated the devil, or that he provided an example of love for you in the cross? I just feel like that setup it just truncates the gospel. It forces us to choose between things that are true, um, and that we need to not only understand like the tension of those, but how they actually integrate together into this glorious multifaceted gospel that is Christ crucified. Um, So that's, yeah, I mean, I tried to really bring those together and there's other people who have done that work and a lot who have done it since as well. So I've been encouraged to see the reaction to that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. One of the things you brought up is, you know, hearing about the kingdom of God and it just being sort of social activism. So I think of maybe like a a Rauschenbusch who sort of, I think you bring him up in the book, actually, you know, this idea of social action, but penal substitution, meh. Then you've got, yeah. like you said, you've got the other side that's like penal substitution, penal, penal substitution is the gospel. I mean, I've heard, heard that one a bunch of times, right? So as you're talking about gospel and the kingdom of God and atonement and stuff, how do you just basically define the gospel in light of all these things? Like, what would you say is missing? What would you say is a really good summary statement? How do you, how do you talk through some of that? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I, we've got to be faithful to scripture here and to the whole counsel of God, right? So to say like the kingdom of God doesn't have anything to do with the gospel is, I mean, you're arguing with Jesus at that point, right? <laughs> like, who preached the gospel of the kingdom. But then if you talk about Christ's death and resurrection for our sins, then like obviously scripture talks about that too. The place I like to go with this is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. I think, I mean, Paul says, I'm passing down what I already received. So this is already like an established tradition or creed in the early church. Mm -hmm. And he says, here's the gospel. Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture. And he rose from the grave in accordance with your scripture. So Christ's death for our sins, his resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. But the word that, or the phrase that's repeated twice in there is in accordance with the scriptures, mm -hmm. Right. And so to me, that's so important because he's not just saying there's some proof texts, right? Like in, in Isaiah and Zechariah, but that this is the fulfillment and the climax of a story. And, and, and the way I, I think that story is best summarized in scripture is the story of the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king who's bringing God's reign over all of creation. So I think 1 Corinthians 15 is a place where you can where you can say, okay, what is the gospel? And say, it's Christ's death and resurrection for our sins that reconciles us to God and establishes the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's how I'd want to summarize mm -hmm. the gospel in a way that's, that's holistic, it's multifaceted. Um, I think there's certainly a variety of ways to share the gospel depending on your context and depending... Um, on, on a lot of different factors. And so I don't, you know, Paul can say Christ crucified, and like, that's good, you know, and then there's times in the book of Acts where he focuses on the resurrection. Uh, so there's differently, there, there's obviously a variety of ways to mm -hmm. share the gospel and to apply the gospel. But first Corinthians 15 is where I'd want to give like a holistic summary of it. So I've heard, I heard a, a debate several years ago, you may have heard it too, between N.T. Wright and Simon Gathercole. I actually went to it uh, at New Orleans and they had this mm. big sort of atonement debate and, yeah. you know, just very crudely summarizing N.T. Wright was basically like the atonement is like, uh, I think he said, a, you know, a, a suitcase and all these different types, you know, Chris's victory, pound substitution, they're all in the suitcase. They're all pieces of clothing in there, but atonement is the, is the sort of uh, outside organizing principle. Gathercole wanted to argue penal substitution is like the hub of a wheel and then everything else comes off of that. So as you, and then uh, Josh McNall had a book recently, Mosaic of the Atonement. It's very good where he mm -hmm. talks about these different. So as you're, as you're just explaining that idea, what is your uh, favorite analogy, your favorite way of talking about how these relate to each other? Is one the core that all the others revolve around? Or are they all sort of equal in different places? How do you talk through that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I'm working this out in the, in the book for Crossway that I'm working on right now. And I think there's a, I think there's a lot of talking past one another that happens in these conversations. So like, I'll answer your question, but let me kind of come around to it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, for example, I think when we talk about atonement, some people are talking about the means and some people are talking about the outcome. Yeah. And, and then they say, no, 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 it's this it's, or it's that, but they're talking about different things. So for example, like Christus Victor um, is, it, it's talking about the victory of the Christ on the cross, but it really doesn't usually talk about how he accomplishes that victory. It's this idea that he defeats sin, Satan, and death, um, but it doesn't really get into the how of that. And so you're, it's really about the outcome of it. 
And uh, I think it's Catherine Tanner who questions whether Chris's Victor is even a theory technically because it doesn't get into the how. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into penal substitution, you're, you're getting into the, like, the inner logic of, of how Christ's death is salvific and redemptive and you know, all these kind of things. So a lot of the times those conversations, people are talking past each other because they're, they're approaching atonement in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to say we need to talk about the how, the, the, the how and the what, the means and the outcome. The, I actually question the, the whole theory approach to the atonement. And this is something that has been like a, a development in my own, uh, in, in my own thinking over the last several years is the conversation has been dominated by um, theories of the atonement. And it's, it's pretty interesting if you, if you do some historical theology on this. Nobody talks about a, a atonement theories until the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and, and that way of framing the doctrine is really a like enlightenment way of thinking that is, I think is unhelpful in a lot of ways because you're usually setting up theories that are fully explanatory, that are self-contained, and usually set up as being competitive to other theories. They're mutually exclusive. Um, and so at my, my friend Adam Johnson has a great article on this in IJST called Theories and Theoria about how uh, theories aren't really the best approach to this and how it's anachronistic to say, well, Luther's theory of penal substitution or Irenaeus's theory of recapitulation, like they weren't thinking in theories like that. They were much more integrated and holistic and doing biblical theology. And um, so I, I think saying, arguing over here are the options, which one's central to the others. I, I just don't feel like it's the best way to do it. Here's how I frame it in my, in my book that I'm working on now. Um, I think the, the atonement is a multi-dimensional accomplishment on the cross within the story that begins in a garden and ends in a kingdom. So I try and, I try and help us understand it within the story of the kingdom where you have multi-dimensions and not just victory and propitiation, but removal of shame. That doesn't show up in most of the atonement conversations. Uh, like participation or theosis as a lot of the Eastern theologians would talk about it, adoption, things like this, right? So it's multidimensional, but the, the center that, that keeps it all connected and holds it together and gives a lot of the explanatory power is substitution. Now, what's different about that than maybe what Gaithercole is saying is- By the, by that, the way, he's, he says substitution, not penal as a hub, by the way. I, I misspoke on that. So, oh, he does say yeah, that. Yeah, so that, oh, okay, if, that, if that helps, yeah. Oh, I need I need to track down and um, read what he says on that because that's what I'm saying as well. And I don't I don't mean that in the sense of the substitution is not penal. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's it's different to say penal substitution is the center. Then you're saying there's a theory that's at the center, whereas I'm saying the idea of substitution is at the center. And I think substitution is penal for sure. Like I don't mm-hmm. have a problem. I I gladly support penal substitution with certain qualifications of a triune understanding and you know if if we can talk about what we mean by it um but i do think that substitution is not just like it's certainly not another theory i don't even see it as another dimension that you would compare to say reconciliation victory justification 
I think substitution is different in that it, it really gets at the how. Um, mm. Christ, we are healed because he was wounded in our place, right? Like we, he was condemned so that we can be declared righteous. So substitution then becomes the key uh, that explains all of these and then creates um, coherence among them all, where it's not just this kind of smorgasbord approach like you often see in, in a lot of more contemporary atonement theology of, no, it's not just this one thing, it's all these things, but there's like no coherence to all of them. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to uh, say it's multi, it's a multidimensional accomplishment with substitution at the center and within the story of the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, he's got a little, Gather Girl's got a little book called uh, Defending Substitution. Um, it's yep. it's called an essay, but it's, you know, it's maybe a hundred pages or something. Um, but yeah, in that, in that conversation with Wright, he fleshed it out a lot in a way I thought was was helpful. Um, mm. So as you're as you're going through thinking about these different ways that atonement and the kingdom of God relate uh, personal sin versus sort of whatever you want to call it, social action or whatever. Everything's a buzzword now. So I don't, I'm not going to yeah. try to put you in any sort of, I'm not trying to put you in any sort of, uh, but just like, how do you think through the implications of all of this in terms of what does it actually mean to be a Christian living in the world and trying to interact with the world out there, uh, my own personal heart, the church, you know, all those kind of things. How do you, how do you think through some of that? Well, man, I could go so many ways with that question. I mean, I, in the book that I'm working on now, I have, I have, um, part of what's unique about it is I, I'm, I'm writing to, to pastors and to lay people in the church who, who want to get into theology. And I, I do a lot of stuff in this book that I didn't do in the crucified King because it was, it was academic. Um, and so I'm, I have a whole chapter on community and what it talks about how the, the atonement creates a community that is a political community. It's a social community. It's, you know, it's a liturgical community. Um, and then I have a whole chapter on discipleship and how the atonement really plays out there. But I, I mean, the way you kind of set up the question of, you know, personal, social, like all of that, uh, I think this is where I think the story that frames atonement um, is so important. So, I mean, uh, think about the way that a lot of um, the way that people frame the atonement. So like the stories that we tell that make sense of the atonement. So, you know, popular kind of going to heaven when you die, right? Like you've got the four spiritual laws or you've got like the, imagine that, you know, the great chasm illustration, right? Mm -hmm. That you're on this one side, your sin is this creates this chasm and God's on the other side, the cross um, bridges it, right? So that you can come to God. The problem with that story is that it, you don't need Israel. You don't need the Trinity. Um, it's very individualistic. It's like me and God. And it's usually like a, a way that I can come to God as opposed to how God has come to us in Christ. And so uh, there's a lot of different ways, you, you know, you could frame the story that shape people's uh, understanding of the atonement. Having a, a, a a biblical comprehensive story is going to give you a holistic understanding of the gospel. So I just, the way I do it in my book is I go through creation, fall, redemption, consummation through the lens of the kingdom of God. And I mean, it, so, you know, you can kind of work backwards. If you don't have a multifaceted understanding of sin, then you're not going to have a, a, a multifaceted understanding of atonement. Right, but you're not going to have a multifaceted understanding of sin unless you have a good doctrine of creation, where God actually cares about more than our souls. Yeah. Right. And and there's a there's a bigger project going on than us 
kind of just having a disembodied existence with God. So thinking about God created the world to be his good kingdom. And he creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, gives them the task of spreading the blessings of his reign to the ends of the earth. And we're, we're in this kingdom project. And then so sin, it separates us from God, but it also derails that kingdom project. Um, and then that, that totally changes the way you think of atonement then. If, uh, as Athanasius frames it, if you understand creation, then you see atonement as recreation, Yeah. right? Um, of God renewing his creation and still fulfilling his promise of the kingdom. So that kind of framework to me tells me that as a Christian, um, God cares about all of it, right? Like if I understand the story of the Bible like that and and the meaning of the kingdom of God, of God's reign over every aspect of life and ultimately over uh, every square inch of the universe. If I understand it like that, it means that, okay, like God cares about um, my work. God cares about my relationships. God cares about my hobbies. God actually cares about sports. God cares about art. Uh, Like all the, it, it, it creates space to see how all of these fit into God's broader plan. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't take away from the, the central importance of God's relationship with his people. Mm-hmm. Like if, if the Bible is a covenant song, like that's the chorus is God saying, I will dwell, I, I will be your God and you will be my people. Like that's, that's the heart of it. So I, you know, I get nervous when some people, they get so excited about new creation that they forget about covenant, the importance of God, God's covenant relationship with his people. But I do think that that story of the kingdom gives us this comprehensive approach to the faith. Yeah, it's good. You bring up uh, God caring about sports, you know, growing up as a Dallas Cowboys fan, we had a big hole in the roof at Texas Stadium so that God could watch his team play every week. You ever heard that before? Uh, yeah. that, was, that was the first religion I heard about before Jesus was God watching his team through the through the hole in Texas Stadium, which has now been uh, imploded. So apparently he didn't care that much about it. But I was going to say maybe God turned his back away. Yeah, well, it feels like it, man. But, you know, I always say, you know, the Lord's the God's people primarily wander and suffer you know that's how i try to make myself feel better so cowboys fans we're wandering and suffering so we're right where god wants us i think so yeah that's right well just you know you can just look to the rams as the example that are you know just ahead that you can strive towards that's true well look the cowboys have been trying to buy a super bowl forever and the rams did it you know so it's like you know every every way we've tried you know so anyway that's how we um, that's how we do it now (laughs) well i love matt stafford he's a dallas boy so i was i was big time rooting for rooting for him just for that reason so Um, okay. So you, this is really kind of transitions, not the sports conversation, what you were saying that was very meaningful and, and deep before that, uh, transitions into being a pastor in the midst of a two year pandemic in which you are disembodied. There is a lot of conversation about how do we do this, uh, without being able to meet or how do we meet? Um, what is the story as, as people are dying everywhere. Now we've got a a war over in, you know, in the Ukraine or an invasion over in the Ukraine, like all this stuff that's going on. How are you talking through that pastorally in light of the kingdom of God, in light of God's covenant with us? Just how is that kind of working out in your ministry? What struggles are you, are you having to work through there theologically? And, and you yeah. Know, what is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, man, there's so much we could talk about here. Right. I mean, I, I feel like the, what, one of the things I've been so grateful for over the last two years is the way that I feel like the story of scripture equips us for for no matter what comes our way. I mean, when when the pandemic hit and it felt 
um, everything just felt so uncertain, right? And we felt like we were wandering. We weren't sure when it was going to change, what was going to happen. Like I, I preached through um, the book of Numbers with our church. I, I didn't hit every verse, but we spent like 13 or 15 weeks in the book of Numbers and talking about the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And we were in this like wilderness season, right? Where we, we weren't sure like exactly where we we're going and what was ahead, but we're trusting God in that. And I, I feel like this, the, the past two years seems like it's been the great revealing. Um, it's, it's exposed so much, right? It's, it's not like, it's not like America didn't have racism before George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. But it exposed so much of what, what had been lingering there. It's not like, like political idolatry wasn't a problem in America before Donald Trump, you know, but it just exploded, um, over the past few years with that. Um, and then the, the, political division, the way that the pandemic has has kind of exacerbated that. It's been this great revealing. And so much of that has been really hard. I mean, like, pastorally, it's been incredibly difficult seeing ways that some people have gone over the last two years. And we just like, there's aspects of that that we just have to grieve and pray. Um, But it's also been encouraging seeing, I think this has been a time of God strengthening his church. And if we look back over church history, I mean, you see the church being strengthened in times of difficulty uh, more than ever. And so I actually, you know, as we're kind of emerging out of this and for us in LA, I mean, we just like the mask mandate just lifted this Mm -hmm. last week. Um, And like, it it still feels like we're we're emerging. And um, my hope and prayer and what I, what I feel confident in is is that, the church, or at least our church, I can speak of our local church, is, mm-hmm. is emerging um, like more deeply united, stronger. Um, and, and for that, I'm really grateful. I mean, it's, it, it's been incredibly difficult, but um, it's been testing for sure. So yeah, I mean, I, but it's, it's been hard. I, I have been thinking a good amount about technology lately. Yeah um because things are getting back to normal and so you know we're starting to ask some of those questions okay do we do you know what do we learn from that do we still need to keep some of these things that we've been doing and um you know it's interesting i i taught at a conference at biola in january of 2020 and i gave two talks one was the embodied christ and Mm -hmm. one was the embodied church and i i mean i i kind of went after gnosticism and (laughs) the obsession with digital technology and uh, talked about all that. And then, and then the pandemic hits, you know, like six or eight weeks later. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we have to go into things that we never thought we'd be doing before. But as I've reflected back on that now, I thought, man, like, okay, was I wrong? Like, do I actually believe what I said then? Or do I question that now? And I would say, um, I would say over the last two years, we've seen not only the benefits of, of digital technology, but we've seen the limits of digital technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I, I think that digital technology is a great supplement to embodied relationships and community, but a terrible replacement for embodied relationships and community. And so for me as a pastor and even as a person in general, I, I'm doubling down on embodied relationships in per the importance of in-person um 
relationships and community. And I'm and and I'm think I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of discipleship because we want to leverage technology however we can in discipleship. Um, but uh, you can't download dis- discipleship. You can't subscribe to growing in godliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think that we need to keep technology in its place as a helpful tool. But I think I think we're learning more than ever of the importance of proximity, uh, of of embodied presence, and and consistent community. So those are some of the things I've been thinking about as we're kind of reflecting and coming out of this season. Yeah, it is interesting. There's there's been a lot of hand wringing over online church, and you know all, all of us have experienced the churches where you know you, you start streaming. You know, summer of twenty, people are like, "Oh, that's pretty nice," but I, yeah. I I've experienced at least you know, personally, and even here on campus at our university, you know, we went through, uh, we sent all the students home halfway through 20, then there's masks, and we're in large classrooms where we're all separated from each other with masks. And then, you know, we had our own sort of spike on campus of COVID, and then everybody's back in their dorms, and just, you know, all that stuff that that comes with it. And for, for however many people there are who are just basically saying, I'm going to watch church on Facebook for the rest of my life or whatever. I felt like there's so many more who are like, that was the worst thing ever. I don't want to do that anymore. Like they, right. like the pe- people want to gather even more than they did before, which it has to be a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, it, but it's tough. Cause you, I mean, you definitely have people on both sides of that, right. Yep. You have that, you know, I'll never take for granted the in-person gathering again, but then you also have a lot of people who are just, you know, the convenience of, oh, I, I'll stay in bed today and you yeah. know, just pull out my phone. Right. So it's tough to navigate through, but yeah. Yeah. And what was it like? I mean, just being in LA, I mean, I'm, I'm in Ohio. I, you know, there's, I don't know what's truth and a lie about how bad it is in LA or how restrictive it is or how it's not. So how's it been just being in a place that is at least supposedly one of the most restrictive areas in the country? Is that, has that been the case or what have you experienced oh, yeah. that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been very restrictive and it's been hard because there's just been, um, I mean, I, so I personally, I've tried to be very cautious and understanding like the health and we've talked about wanting to love our neighbor well and um, represent Christ well in the city. But then the the government has been very restrictive and then the government has also just broken trust in so many different ways, right? And and there's national government, uh, state government and and city, you know, local government, they're all saying different things. And yeah. so- yeah, it's been difficult. I mean, I think I think probably what's been hard here, um, and what's been the case for most people, it's just different contexts, is the politicization of all of it. And you know, if if you do one thing, then it people perceive it as a political yeah. statement. And I was talking with a pastor friend in uh, London, and it's just not like that there. <laughs> the government says something, and they follow it, and it's not like yeah. this kind of you know, they just do it. And I was like, oh, that that would have been nice. You know? <laughs> So that side of it is kind of like what feels like politics creeping into everything and trying to take over has been frustrating because I'm just, I'm constantly saying to my church that like, listen, I'm not for the left. I'm not for the right. I'm for the kingdom of God. I'm like, I'm trying to shepherd well with a lot of different factors and I'm not trying to use this as an opportunity to make any political statement. And sometimes that aligns over here and sometimes that aligns over there, but that's been hard. There's, there's just such a culture of, skepticism and kind of sniffing out um like oh is he really this or is he really that so that's been difficult but i know it, everyone's had it hard in different ways yeah it does seem like i mean it, it's it might be a stereotype but it does seem like 
being in LA has got to be as, as difficult as any in terms of just the, the melting pot of people, the different people you'd have at your church. Like where I'm at in Cedarville, Ohio, it, it, Ohio is relatively conservative as a state generally, and then Cedarville is, is probably more conservative than most of Ohio. Seven minutes down the road is Yellow Springs, which is where Dave Chappelle lives and did like all of his specials during the pandemic. And it's the opposite. It's like you go in and it's Black Lives Matter sign over the over the entry to the city, rainbow flags. It's just like, I mean, it's like we joke that we cancel each other out when we're voting uh, in some ways, you know, and there's there's yeah, I, 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 I have some issues with that. I wish that we, that we were more integrated as a community and that there was more, you know, crossover or whatever. But I feel like for you, maybe in, in LA and particularly you're in the Hollywood area, right? So are you yeah. just in a, a melting pot of politics and yeah. like that kind of stuff or? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's definitely like it culturally, it, it, it's strong left leaning, both yeah. politically and culturally. But there's a ton of diversity within that. And even within our, our own church, I mean, one of our values as a church is multicultural community. We have a hundred, we have people from 116 different nations in our church. And one of the things that a, a mentor of mine told me a long time ago was to be a multi-ethnic church means you're also going to be a multi-political church, mm. right? So, so you have, I mean, the nations are in Los Angeles. So all the different cultural aspects of that shape it a lot. And then you even have like LA is very liberal in general, but like Orange County is much more conservative politically. And then you have a lot of people here from Orange County. You have a lot of people mm. in LA from the Midwest. So it is, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's a melting pot for sure. And one that, I mean, just like in terms of leadership of trying to understand different perspectives and, you know, for our elders, we've constantly been trying to teach people empathy and to try and like think about it not primarily as just national social issues but like also understanding like there's real people behind these let's talk like let's listen let's understand and let's make sure that we have space where people can land on on different sides politically or what they think about uh mask mandates or whatever that is and find our unity in christ and figure out a way to like to to fight for solidarity and unity moving forward recognizing what a powerful thing that can be in our city man where else can you go and people disagree on politics and the pandemic and all this different stuff but but we act like family and we love each other so in that sense it's an incredible opportunity for the church to shine unfortunately i think in general that hasn't been the case you know nationally um but but that's what that's what we're striving for more and more yeah well, that's a good encouragement to end on. Hopefully that uh, pastors listening to this will be able to think through that, whatever their context is in, is just you know, kind of love each other well and make it out of this pandemic together. I think we've, you know, I think you're right. There's been an unveiling uh, in a lot of ways, you know, some bad, some good. I think most of us have probably experienced some of that in our own hearts and minds of just thinking through how to relate to the culture and politics and everything else. So hopefully that's an encouragement to others. So Jeremy, thanks so much for, for taking some time to be on with me. Thanks, man. It's great being with you. I'm really grateful for you and the work that you do. And hopefully our, our Clippers and Mavs will uh, have a collision course in the playoffs. Hey, as long as Kawhi is still not playing and Paul George is still not playing, I'll be totally fine with that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, All man. Right. Thank you. Thanks, man.